0: You're listening to a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast.
1: This is an Allied Health and Nursing Education Outreach Program podcast in collaboration with the Education Hub at the Royal Children's Hospital. Hi, my name's Sarah Temby and I'm an Education Fellow in the RCH Education Hub. Today we have Anne-Marie Adams, who's a Chief Sleep Scientist in the Royal Children's Hospital Children's Sleep Service and she's been working here at RCH for 14 years. Today we'll be discussing sleep scientists and obstructive sleep apnea in children. Welcome, Amory. Good day, Sarah, and thanks for having me. So let's start with what is obstructive sleep apnea. Obstructive sleep
0: apnea, or OSA, is a medical condition in which children have trouble breathing when they're asleep. During sleep, muscles around the airway can relax and cause the upper airway and the throat to narrow. This leads to snoring, but if bad enough, it can also lead to the airway being partially or fully blocked. In childhood, enlarged tonsils and adenoids often contribute to the obstruction. And you can imagine if you're trying to breathe against a blocked airway, that your work of breathing would increase. This causes your oxygen levels to drop, your CO2 levels to rise, and that triggers your brain to think, hang on, this is not right. And it wakes you up. When you wake up, you may not always be aware of it, because it can be brief, but it's enough to open up your airways again. And in OSA, this can happen intermittently through the night and disrupt ventilation and can significantly disturb your sleep.
1: Okay, and how common is obstructive sleep apnea, or look, let's just call it OSA from now on? Okay, OSA is fairly common, and it affects around 5% of children. It
0: can lead to things like neurocognitive impairment, behavioural problems, failure to thrive, hypertension, cardiac dysfunction, and even systemic inflammation. In school age children, obesity is a risk factor, and as the prevalence of paediatric obesity rises the rates of childhood OSA are also expected to rise. Also, it's worth noting that OSA isn't the only sleep disorder and there are various other medical and behavioural disorders of sleep affecting up to about 30% of children. These include things like bedtime resistance, bedwetting, bruxism or teeth grinding, sleep rocking, narcolepsy and insomnia. Not to mention the impacts that phone use in the evening and at night might be having on teenagers' sleep. And sleep hygiene in teenagers can be a very difficult issue to address because of this.
1: And what are the symptoms of
0: OSA? Our signs and symptoms can include regular snoring and noisy breathing during sleep. Uh, snoring may be benign in some cases, but can also be a sign of more significant OSA. There can be increased work of breathing or pauses in breathing during sleep. Parents may see that their child is making breathing efforts when there's no airflow. This is called an apnea, but the absence of a report of apneas doesn't always exclude OSA. Mm -hmm. Parents can report choking, gasping or snorting during sleep, or just really restless sleep. Alongside this, parents may see increased sweating during sleep or unusual sleep positions, like hyperextended head postures or needing to be propped up high on pillows. There may be mouth breathing during the day and during sleep, morning headaches, tiredness on waking, despite what seems like an adequate sleep time. And OSA can lead to difficulty paying attention, behaviour problems and learning difficulties.
1: Right, okay. And so what is the cause of OSA?
0: The most common cause of childhood OSA is large tonsils and adenoids. Tonsils and adenoids grow the most quickly during the preschool years and their size in the upper airway is the largest compared to the size of the airway or facial skeleton at this time, and it can lead to
1: airway obstruction. And you mentioned that obesity is a risk factor for OSA. Are there other risk factors?
0: Yeah, there are. Other than obesity in the older children, the risk factors for OSA are things like nasal allergy, hay fever, underlying medical conditions that cause low muscle tone or abnormal craniofacial structure with small airway size, such as Down syndrome or achondroplasia. And in fact, at the RCH sleep service, we only see children who have a comorbidity because we set the service up with eligibility criteria. Examples of the kids that we would see are those with neuromuscular disorders, craniofacial conditions, recurrent infant apneas, genetic and metabolic disorders and other complex syndromes. And is there a treatment for OSA? Well, firstly, an attended overnight sleep study is the best method to diagnose and quantify the severity of OSA, uh, whereas the treatment of OSA varies depending on the cause and the severity of OSA. There's a range of treatments or options available, from adenotonsillectomy to topical nasal steroids, but it's best to consult with your doctor about the best way to proceed.
1: CPAP's also an alternative. And can a child's OSA continue despite those treatments you just mentioned? And further question, if so, what do you do in that situation?
0: Again, an attended overnight sleep study is the best method to quantify the severity of any residual OSA. And some children with persisting OSA can be treated with continuous positive airway pressure, or CPAP. And CPAP is a device that essentially blows air through the airways to splint them open. The air is delivered through a mask that the patient wears either on their nose or on their face. And we can also deliver CPAP through a trache tube. And some children need a little bit of air pressure to resolve their obstruction, whereas some will need a lot. And that's where a titration sleep
1: study is essential. Okay, so yeah, you just mentioned those sleep studies and that being the best method to diagnose OSA. What actually is a sleep study? <laughs> so a sleep study is also called a polysomnography or a PSG. And
0: during a PSG, we monitor and record a wide variety of physiological data from the patients. For an in-hospital study, we attach 32 electrodes and sensors to the children. And during the study, we quantify when the child is awake or asleep and what stage of sleep they're in. For example, light sleep or deep sleep or REM sleep with EEG electrodes and an electrooculogram or EOG. for eye movements, we use surface EMG electrodes for muscle tone. And this helps us look for REM sleep because if you have breathing problems during sleep, they can often be worse in REM because of the associated drop in muscle tone during this sleep stage. We quantify gas exchange by measuring oxygen saturations and transcutaneous CO2, which is a surrogate for arterial CO2. So,
1: you mentioned apneas before. How do you measure for that in the sleep study?
0: We describe and quantify respiratory events like obstructive apneas during the sleep study by measuring respiratory effort with bands around the chest and abdomen and surface EMGs to look for increased work of breathing in the diaphragm and
1: also snoring
0: and effort seen in the upper airway related muscles. And as you
1: said, there are other sleep disorders apart from OSA. Are there other things that you measure in your sleep study? We measure leg movements for restless legs and periodic limb movement,
0: which can lead to delayed sleep or lots of waking during sleep. We record video and audio to help with the analysis and reporting of these studies and so that we don't have to keep going in and out of the patient's room to see what's going on. At the RCH sleep service we have the capacity to perform about 500 sleep studies per year, including neonatal studies and home studies. Most of the staff who work during the day at the RCH are unlikely to have seen a sleep scientist as we tend to work after hours. We have sleep scientists and nurses who will set up the patients,
1: others who will stay overnight and a few daytime staff to analyse the data. Wow, sleep scientists do a lot and so many things that you're measuring. I've got to ask, how on earth do you get a child to be okay with placing 32 electrodes and sensors on them? Yeah, that can be tricky to say the least. A bit of art versus science... Uh, We created a Be
0: Positive video with Creative Studios about sleep studies and it plays on the RCH TV channel and you can also access it by googling RCH Be Positive Sleep Study. We send the link to the video out to the parents so that the children can watch it before they come in to try and ease some of that anxiety. We try to make the environment as calm and as happy as possible which can be tricky when we're on a ward. Often you're seeing the child and the parent for the first time and you have to quickly establish a rapport with the child and the parent. We also need to assess their capabilities, developmental level and even mood. We try to involve the child and the parent as much as we can. They can play with some of the electrodes or a bit of tape and stick some on (laughs) mum or dad. And we use distractions as much as possible, but try to balance that with overstimulating them, because we do need them to go to sleep during the (laughs) sleep study. Very good point. (laughs) So calming shows or music, we tell them to bring their favourite blanket, pillow, pyjamas and toys to try and make them feel as comfortable as possible. Surprisingly, we only have a handful of failed studies and we usually do get some useful information.
1: That is surprising.
0: And what happens after the sleep study? We will analyse the data and quantify things like the different sleep stages including REM sleep as I mentioned before. We quantify the respiratory events and classify their etiology like obstructive versus central events. We mark events that cause sleep disturbance or gas exchange issues. And this analysis can take us about two hours for a normal study with no events and up to eight hours for an neonate with severe obstruction because you have to watch the whole night's sleep. If the child is deemed by the sleep consultant to need CPAP, either ongoing or until surgery or some other reason, they'll have a period of acclimatisation to CPAP, after which they'll come in for a CPAP titration sleep study. We'll set them up for the sleep study again, and the sleep scientists can objectively assess and titrate how much CPAP pressure or air they need to resolve their obstruction as that study progresses.
1: Great, well thank you so much Amory, and what would be your three key take home messages?
0: <laughs> well, number one, snoring in children is not normal. Number two, obstructive sleep apnea is relatively common in children, more so in those with comorbidities that would affect things like muscles, brains, airways. So we should consider the possibility of OSA in any child who snores, but especially those in complex medical conditions. Mm-hmm. Everyone should prioritise sleep. <laughs> I'll say that again. Everyone should prioritise sleep. I totally agree with number three. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the three pillars of health alongside nutrition, exercise, and is essential for well-being.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much, Amory, for talking today about your experience as a sleep scientist and also about obstructive sleep apnea. No worries. It's been fun. Thanks.
0: Thanks for listening. Please view the description section below for more information on this topic. The Education Hub is a collaboration between the Royal Children's Hospital and the University of Melbourne Department of Paediatrics and funded by the RCH
1: Foundation.